Well, outside of the Bible, I think the greatest story that's ever been written, I'm a little biased on this, is the Lord of the Rings trilogy by J.R.R. Tolkien. There's so many wonderful characters with detailed backstories that come together to form a perfect blend of action and a tale of good versus evil. If you're unfamiliar with this story, it's long. If you watch the three movies in the trilogy, it'll take you about 12 hours, only the extended. Don't watch the other ones. Or you can read the books, and it'll take you somewhere between 40 and 50 hours to finish the story. It's the story of, a, of an evil being who creates rings that hold power over all of the other rings that he creates. There's one ring to rule them all. And he brings this, his life force brings to this ring this power that controls men, dwarves, and elves. The story moves forward that the evil one, the one who created the ring, wants his ring back. He lost it many, many years before. And a fellowship, a ragtag group of individuals come together and on a journey that's going to take them thousands of miles to destroy the ring in the mountain that it was forged. There's more to the story than that, certainly, but that's the quickest explanation I can give. But the reason why I'm saying this is that there was a fellowship, a group of nine individuals that have come together to complete a task. After they joined together, they traveled for a few weeks and entered into a place named Lothlorien. It was a forest realm inhabited by elves. I, I know I've lost some of you already. Just bear with me. There's a point to this. I'm talking about elves and dwarves and wizards and all this stuff. But it, as their time in Lothlorien is about to end, the elven queen Galadriel gives them gifts to journey with. To Frodo, the main character in the story, the, the ring bearer, the one who is tasked to destroy the ring and end the evil reign forever, she gives the light of Arendil, encouraging him to use it when all other lights have gone out. He later uses this light to, to save himself, to get out of a bad situation. Now, in many ways, God's faithfulness is similar to that light of Arendil. Now, we know that Tolkien was a believer. He was a Christian. So these Christian symbols that we see in his stories are no accident. See, we often forget that we have the gift of God's presence and his love. And suddenly it seems when all hope is gone, we don't know what to do. But when we stop looking back and instead fix our eyes upon Christ, everything is illuminated in the light of his love and his faithfulness. And we see that we've never been alone. That God has always been with us. That God has always been for us. That God is always protecting his children. Now this is most true when we're experiencing pits or valleys in our faith. We feel lost and alone and there's nowhere to turn. And we need a light to guide our way when all lights have gone out. A light that brightens our path, giving us hope to return home. It's no surprise to me that we often seek God when we hit the bottom. I've been approached by many people who come to me because they have nowhere else to go. And they say that, I have nowhere else to go. Some are trying to, to get out of a bad situation while others are genuinely looking for answers 
And not just a way to get out, but they're trying to redeem their experiences, trying to see what does God want me to learn through this. And what I'm most reminded of in these situations, often my own stories, is that the light never goes out. The light of faithfulness. The light that God has shown through his history of being faithful to his word. I've been so unfaithful to God, but he has always remained faithful to me. If we are faithless, he is faithful. See, the Bible is full of stories of people who tried to wiggle out of the faithfulness of God, only to find that they couldn't fight hard enough. Adam and Eve listened to Satan. Adam and Eve idolized themselves, their needs, and disobeyed God for it. And we're the benefactors. We've been given those, the punishment that Adam and Eve deserved. They faced consequences for their sin, but God still clothed them and cared for them. Abraham and Sarah victimized their servant, creating a conflict that still lives today. But even in their unfaithfulness, God remained faithful. You remember it was God who made the covenant with Abraham. So when Abraham's sin seemed to swallow him up, God was still faithful. Because it was God, not Abraham, that the covenant depended on. The Israelites knew the love of God. They, they were rescued and they were saved from captivity. And they knew the love of God, but they wanted something new. It was stale. They got tired of it. They weren't satisfied with God's goodness, so they looked elsewhere. They grumbled and they disobeyed. But when they were in trouble, what did they do? They came back to God and God was there. Always faithful. See, this is a story that we see played out over and over again in the Bible. There's this common story that keeps happening over and over, and we're seeing it in Genesis, where God promises faithfulness, the people fail, and yet God still remains faithful. Seen in Jacob's life as well. Far from being a man of faithfulness, Jacob was someone who we could define by his sin. He should have been defined by his sin, at least. That's what he's been doing. He's been sinning against God and sinning against others. But it's God who is the one who defines who we are. And he has stamped Jacob as one of his own. We're going to see this morning how Jacob is a lot like us, a rebel, a bad guy. Someone who does everything he could to get away from the covenant of God, and yet God still says, no, you're part of this. You're mine. You belong to me. I will protect you. Not because of you. You can't do anything to save yourself in this. I am here to give you what you need. I am here to protect you. Because I am faithful. That's what God says to us too. You can't earn your salvation. You can't do enough good. But you don't have to, because God is good. Now this section of scripture that we just read is a continuation of the story of Jacob. Jacob is the son of Isaac. Isaac is the son of Abraham. The family line is full of strong names, but the people were flawed. The stories that we uh, read about are not about these people being heroes of the faith. What their stories are, are written in scripture is to point us to the real hero. The one who has always been faithful. The one who has not failed. The one who has not sinned. 
to make these people heroes would be missing the point. Now up until this point, Jacob has served Laban for 14 years. He was tricked by his father-in-law. Now remember, Jacob was a trickster himself. He was tricked by his father-in-law into marrying. He, he wanted Rachel, and the father-in-law snuck Leah in the tent at night. And then he said, you want Rachel, you got to work for me for seven more years. So 14 years Jacob has served or worked for his father-in-law. Now remember that Jacob, his history of, of, of deceit, is long. He, he, he tricked his father Isaac into giving him the blessing that really belonged to Esau. And before that, Jacob cheated Esau out of his birthright. Jacob's life as a married man was also full of sin and scandal. He had multiple wives who happened to be sisters. Abuse, mistreatment, lies were the norms in his relationships. So Jacob had worked for Laban for 14 years, a long time. Now this text doesn't tell us, but it's safe to say that these two, Jacob and Laban, were probably not buddies. They weren't hanging out after work. They weren't spending time with each other. Jacob likely resented Laban for what he had done to him. There was a lack of trust and multiple instances of deceit. And as we know from our own lives, when bitterness resides in our hearts and in our relationship, it creates problems for us. When we don't resolve these problems, when we don't deal with them, it gets worse. And it doesn't say in the passage if they ever patched things up, but based on what we read today, it's likely that they didn't. Jacob wants out. He's done. He's tired of living this way. He's tired of working this way. He wants to go back to his homeland. So Jacob requests that his father-in-law send him out with his wives and children. He wants to be free. And he doesn't ask for much. He just says, hey, give me my family and I'll leave. In other words, I've done more than it was ever asked of me. Now let me go in peace. Laban then admits that Jacob has been responsible for the empire's growth. So Laban makes an offer. He says this, name your wages. Tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. Whatever it is that you want, I will pay you all of that and maybe more. But Jacob isn't interested in money. He wants the freedom to live as he chooses. Now, I, I read this passage multiple times and I kept thinking, what would I do if I were in Jacob's position? And I kept thinking about in-laws. And I kept thinking about how I would not want to be married to sisters, of, for one thing. But I wouldn't want to be married to the daughters of a guy like Laban. Not a good guy. And I started thinking about how grateful I am that my in-laws, I like. We get along. They're four hours away. My parents are eight hours away. It's far enough, but close enough. It works really well. So there's some distance between us. I'm also, again, not married to two sisters, which is weird. Um, and a recipe for disaster. So I think Paul's requirement of a pastor being a husband of one wife is a really good Requirement, but I also think it's good for all of us, not just for pastors. But I'm glad that I'm married into a, a family that was not full of Laban's. And I'll say this as an aside. If you can, if your in-laws are still alive, call them after church today. And just tell them thank you for not being like Laban. And just say thank you for, thank you for not being like that guy. And don't even explain it, just, and then just hang up and see what they say. What are they doing at that church? 
Well, Jacob certainly didn't help himself in these relationships. He's the, the type of guy that I don't think anybody here would ever want to be around. He's lied, he's cheated, and he, he, he looks like a success. So he's done all of the bad things, but to the world, he is successful. Guys like Jacob attract guys like Jacob, don't they? Remember high school? The bullies? The athletes? The quarterback? The starting point guard? The guys who had everything, they had the muscles and the good looks and the girls, but yet they were the biggest jerks. And everything they did, it seemed to turn into gold. To the outside world, that's what Jacob looks like. He looks like that guy, the guy who everything he does is just turning out great. But we know bullies attract bullies. And we know that guys like Jacob attract guys like Jacob. And it seems to me that Jacob and Laban were almost made for each other, weren't they? Two scoundrels. Any decent person would have appreciated all that Jacob did for him. And they would have appreciated it by giving him what he requested. But losing the person that made you so successful is a hard pill to swallow. If you've ever run a business, you may understand the difficulty that Laban was facing. You spend money and time into training someone, preparing them for a position. And after a few years, they decide to leave because they have a higher paying offer. And you feel like they're abandoning you because you've spent so much of your time and energy into this person. And the person says, well, I got more money. You can't match it. I'm gone. And so Laban feels like that. You've given me 14 years. I'm successful now. And it's because of you. I don't want you to leave. I need you here. I need you to stay here. Our instinct is to circle the wagons and call them a traitor to try to figure out a way to get them to stay, and this is what Laban was doing. And after that, he was working for his father-in-law. It's not just his boss. Jacob gave him 14 years that produced results. Laban knows that if he lets him leave, his profits could plummet, so he needs to do all that he can to keep him there. There's something interesting. Look at verse 27. Laban's response, he says this, if I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. Now Laban is a flatterer. He's a con man. He says what he thinks you want to hear. He, he's trying to get people to come to his side and he's, oh, you're great. I can see it. You're blessed. So how exactly did Laban learn about this? Laban maybe have seen it, but here it the strange statement says that it's by divination. Now, when we think of divination, we think of people kind of conjuring up spirits or playing a Ouija board or some witches around a, 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 a you know, with broomsticks and all that other stuff in a pot. And that's what we think of. It could be some form of enchantment, a way to figure out the hidden things of the world. It could also mean that Laban was able to see the future in some way, but I think another option's better, the more simple option. Laban just recognized that God had blessed him because of the work of Jacob. He saw it. He knew it. He recognized it. He, he saw that his prophets went up when Jacob was there. He saw his land expanded. He saw his flock grow. None of those possibilities, though, should shock you. Laban is a, a bad guy. He's pagan to the core, and his concern is not about doing the right thing or treating people with dignity and fairness. Laban only cares about Laban. 
Laban's response to Jacob is something like this. You ask for release. I've lived up to my end of the bargain. You've worked for 14 years to have my daughters. If you want anything else, you have to work for it. That's why in verse 28 he says, name your wages and I'll give it. Again, you see a, a focus on money and maintaining what he already had. Jacob, Jacob didn't care about the money so much. He wanted his own flock, so he makes an offer that Laban couldn't resist. Laban's flock had mostly white and uh, varied colored sheep and goats. He would give the minority of the sheep, or the spotted, or the colored goats, to Jacob. And Laban was eager to get more service from Jacob. So Jacob offered to remove the multicolored sheep and goats from Laban's flock. And Jacob would still watch over the rest of the animals. Whenever the animals bred, the plain ones would stay in Laban's flock and the multicolored would go with Jacob. Now Jake Laban was certain that he was winning this. You can kind of picture this after this conversation. You can kind of see Laban turn and turn his back to, to Jacob and kind of smile and smirk. And he's holding in the laughter. He thinks he's got him. He, he, he's certain that he played Jacob for a sucker. Now notice that Jacob, through this interaction, makes it clear that it was God who brought the blessing. It wasn't Jacob. Jacob's life had, had been up and down in terms of his relationship with God. And honestly, this is what many of us have experienced. Though Jacob's journey is hopefully more dramatic than yours. He goes from recognizing the greatness of God to participating in some horrific sin. See, many of us have found ourselves in the middle of a situation where we didn't think there was a way out. It may have been from our own doing or the fault of someone else, but either way, we're stuck. What do we do? Some blame God. Some wonder, God, why would you let this happen to me? Others try to figure a way out on their own. And do you see what Jacob is doing here? Do you see how through all of this mess that he's created, all of these problems that, that have been brought to him, that he has participated in this, he ultimately knew that God was the one responsible for any success that he experienced. Do you know what we're seeing here? We're seeing Jacob mature. We're seeing him grow. Is he perfect? Absolutely not. Is he going to make more mistakes? Yeah. But he's recognizing something that as believers we have to first understand that God is good and God is sovereign and we are not. That is the, the fundamental core of the Christian faith. And Jacob is seeing this. He's saying, look, all of those things that I've done, I didn't do it. The success I had, it is from God. He's the one who made that flock grow. He's the one that made those crops grow. Not me. He's maturing. In our lives, we, we often go through the maturation process when we're pressed. You battle through something and you get through it, and sometimes it takes many years to recognize, but when you get through that tragedy, when you get through those difficult times, you realize that at the end you came out stronger. We grow when we're pushed to our limits. An athlete only gets better when they keep pushing beyond the boundaries that they think they've set in their mind. A marriage that doesn't work through difficulties will never be strong in the end. This is part of our growth. This is part of life. And spiritually speaking, this is too many Christians haven't recognized that we grow through difficult times. And so we avoid that. We, we are too comfortable. We try our best to avoid anything that's difficult or painful. 
We want to live a life of ease. But when trials come, we don't know how to respond. See, Jacob's experience, much of it was his own fault, but his experience kept bringing him to a better understanding of who God is. Listen, if you're going through a difficult time or difficult times, have you ever wondered, have you ever prayed and asked God, why is this happening? Not God, not so much God, take it away. We do pray those, but God, what am I supposed to learn from this? What is it that, I, that I'm missing here? What is it that you want me to know? See, Jacob's, Jacob's experience is this, is what's happening. He is learning from these difficult situations and he's maturing. He's understanding more and more that God is the one that's in control. So Jacob makes the offer to Laban and then Laban responds and he does three things. Laban takes all the animals from his herd that could produce offspring quickly. Because he wanted Jacob around longer. He didn't want to see Jacob be a success. Number two, he puts his sons in charge. They're there to watch Jacob, to make sure that Jacob doesn't do anything wrong. And number three, and this is the one that will come back to bite him later, he separates his flock from Jacob's because he doesn't trust him. He thinks if I get him three miles down the way, then he can't steal any of mine, so we're going to put him three miles away. But it backfires because Laban couldn't see all the stuff that Jacob was doing. Well, then in verse, verses 37 through 43, we see Jacob's response to all this. It's been evident in every life so far that we've looked at in the New Testament that they're all scoundrels in some way. S some wonder why God would choose to use people who were so rotten. We saw how last week how God purposely uses bad people to display his own goodness. God takes good or bad and makes it good. And don't make these people who are reading about something that they're not. They're not Jesus. They're people like you and me. But we can learn from them. So what do we learn from Jacob? See here, Jacob is blessed by God. We've seen it so many times, God blessing people who didn't deserve it. Now, I challenge you to point to any moment in Jacob's life up to this point and say, yeah, he deserved the blessing of God. Time and time again, Jacob was defined by his sin, his rebellion, his, 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 the problems in his life is, are things that he created. But this is the beauty of what the gospel does. God takes people who aren't worthy of anything good and gives them indescribable blessings. It's like a potter who takes a lump of clay that looks worthless, that doesn't have any value. It can't do anything for anybody. It's just a mess. And God, being the potter, makes it into some beautiful instrument that has value and worth. That can do something that's called or given the ability to do a task and to, to serve a purpose. God takes our messes, our failings, and our sin and turns us into something beautiful and useful. Now, it's not because you are wonderful. It's not because I'm wonderful. We don't deserve these things. It's actually the opposite. You and I deserve the perfect wrath of God, but instead God gives us blessings. God is faithful. Jacob's story is not something that should upset us. It does. It's troublesome but we shouldn't be upset that a bad guy is being blessed this is a, a common statement that I hear from people who are opposed to our faith as they say these guys are rotten people these guys are bad people and yet God is blessing them and they say I don't want to worship a God who blesses bad people 
I don't want to worship that God. Jacob experienced the taste of what we get when we trust in Jesus. We're all bad guys. We're all bad people. Every single one of us is bad. Every single one of us deserves condemnation. We're no better than Jacob. We're no better than Laban. All of us deserve the wrath of God. But through Christ, we don't get it. Because Jesus took the penalty for us. See, this is just a, a early foreshadowing of what's going to happen. Jacob is, is being not faithful, but God is being faithful to him. So Laban now thinks he's tricked Jacob. But Jacob has a plan. He's going to change his breeding technique. Now, this is really odd. The idea in the ancient world was that while animals were mating, if they looked at something, that would affect their offspring. But it was common. It was a common belief of the day. Obviously, this isn't reality. Science has not changed. We understand that animals mate and DNA and all of those things, the character traits that get passed down. It's not because you're looking at a tree that has white marks on it. That's foolishness. God knows that it's foolishness. And so we know that this is not what happened with the flock, that it was God who, who, who worked through Jacob's foolishness. Laban took out the animals that were most likely to reproduce, but yet Jacob's flock produced rapidly. There's no way that Jacob could have had such great success, certainly not by colors on a tree. It was God working. It was God moving in those animals. It was God doing this. How else can we explain this? Now what we've seen throughout all of this story of Jacob is that when God promises a blessing, it happens. Nothing can stop it. Laban's wicked religion and his lying and his deceitfulness couldn't hold God back. Jacob's sin couldn't hold God back either. A quick summary of the entire Bible. You go from Genesis to Revelation will show you that God is sovereign, humans are not, and then God gets his way because that's how he glorifies himself. God is in control. And so when God makes a promise, it will be kept. Do you notice that God's not sitting back waiting for Jacob to earn his salvation. God's not waiting for Jacob to fulfill his end of the deal. No, God makes a promise and he fulfills it. Job 42.2 says this, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Isaiah 46 Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, your transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And God wills something, it happens. God accomplishes everything that he wants, and God doesn't share his glory with anyone or anything. See, Jacob likely viewed himself as someone special. Everyone around him would have encouraged him, hey man, you got a gift. You are good. Animal husbandry, that's what you're good at. It's a weird gift, but you're good at that. You've produced this flock, you've, you've grown this flock quicker than anyone else. And that's how someone would prefer to tell this story. 
Jacob did the right thing. God blessed him. Simple, right? So then we pass it down to our children and we pass it down to their children. Do good, get blessed. Produces a motivation to behave, doesn't it? We want our children to behave. So do good and you get a reward, right? You, you behave and I'll give you something. But we've seen that not only did Jacob not do the right things, Jacob did a lot of bad things. He was not a good person. He did not deserve any blessing that he had. See, many will read the Old Testament and they'll be bothered by it. They can't understand why God would be so faithful to people who were not faithful. And my answer to that is, you're exactly right. That's 100% exactly right. It's a great question. And if you can find the answer to that, the entirety of Scripture and God's dealing with humanity is answered because that points you directly to the gospel. Why would God be faithful to people who aren't? The foundation of the gospel has been laid all the way back at creation when God promised that someone would come to crush the head of the serpent. They were still in the garden at this point. God was faithful when he made the covenant with Abraham. Abraham was not always an admirable person, but God was glorified in using Abraham for his purposes. See, this bothers people who aren't Christian. They can't get past how someone could do terrible things and still receive blessings from God. I remember hearing stories about people on death row, and, 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 and someone came in and shared the gospel with them. They became a believer before they were executed. And, and I see... The rage in some people's eyes, they say, well, that person did not deserve that. They did not deserve to, to, to go to heaven. They did all these terrible things. And the truth is, exactly right, they didn't. But if they came to Christ in faith, their payment has been paid in full. Just like yours and just like mine. The slate is clean. We don't owe any more. And this bothers people. I get it. I understand why this is so troubling. Good people should be blessed and bad people should be punished. That's how we work as people. But the Bible tells us something, and it tells us that we are all bad people. See, if I'm comparing myself to you, I may be better than you. I don't know. You may be better than me. You may be better than almost every other person on the planet, but that still doesn't put you in the right standing with God. Because you're using the wrong measuring stick. It's natural for us to compare ourselves to others. But the only measuring stick that matters is us compared to God. We don't meet the standard of God's perfection. So what did God do for Jacob? Jacob couldn't do it either. Jacob couldn't meet the standard, but God still remained faithful. Jacob's standing with God was not based on what Jacob had done or what he could do for God. Jacob's standing with God was based entirely on the faithfulness of God that he would keep his word, that the covenant belonged with him. You may say, well, we're not Jacob. You're right, but we do share the same problem. Our sin has caused problems for us and for those around us. No amount of good deeds will ever make those go away. So God flips everything upside down so that we can have life. See, Jesus is the only person who never sinned. He took our place on the cross that we deserved. He carried the weight of our sin on his shoulders. The only person that wasn't bad carried the weight of those who are. 
And Jesus carried that weight. And at the same moment, his righteousness was transferred to us. His perfection, his goodness, giving us a right standing before the Father that we can say it's not us, but it's your Son. He's given me all that I am and all that I have, and I stand before you, Father, in light of your Son. And Jesus takes the penalty of all of our sin. God flips everything upside down. It's not good people who earn blessings. God takes bad people who deserve suffering and instead gives them life. Christian, this is your story. The gospel of God's faithfulness has been working ever since creation. This is our story. This is the gospel truth moving in us. See, it's really, really easy to read through these narratives in the Old Testament and just see stories of people. Oh, Jacob was blessed by God. Abraham was blessed by God. Isaac was blessed by God. We know the characters. You may have seen a felt board or, or you may have colored pictures in Sunday school. And we know these people. But this story is not really about Jacob, is it? This passage is about a God who is faithful to people who are not faithful to him. That's our entire faith summed up in a sentence, isn't it? God is faithful to people who are not. If you're not a believer, if you're not a Christian, if you've never once put your faith in Christ, if you've never trusted in him for salvation, if you don't know of a moment where you can say, yes, I'm certain that I belong to the family of God, the wrath of God is still over your head. It's not pleasant. It's not fun to think about. But if you have trusted in Christ, let this be a reminder that God is faithful to you. That your world may be upside down, your world may be spinning, you may have lost all control, and you don't know where to turn. You are at the end of your rope. God still promises that he is faithful. You may have come to a point where you have disowned everything that you once believed, and you have one last shred of your faith left. And you've, you've ignored everything that God has said and you turned away and turned to your sin. God is still faithful to you. God promises eternity with him for those who trust in his son. If you've never done that, let today be that day. And if you're a believer, let this gospel message remind you of the wonderful, the glorious, the perfect faithfulness of God. That we may fail ourselves, we will. Others will fail us, certainly. But God never fails. He is faithful, just like he was to Jacob. And he is to us. Would you pray with me?